towards the end of his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul arrived in Jerusalem against the advice of his closest friends. Not only had the political and religious environment become a powder keg, but the fear was that Paul's very presence in Jerusalem was all that was needed to light the fuse. Sure enough, almost immediately following his arrival, Paul ends up in the center of the action and a riot ensues. Not sure exactly what all was the cause for the hubbub, the Roman guards sweep in to the Temple Mount and they arrest Paul knowing that it would be virtually impossible to get a fair hearing in front of the Jewish ruling body known as the Sanhedrin, who, who wanted Paul dead. Paul does something interesting at the end of the book of Acts. He invokes a right that every Roman citizen possessed. That was the right to have his, his case heard, not locally, but before Caesar. At the time, it was Nero. This request was obliged And under guard of the empire, Paul then makes his way from Jerusalem to Rome. It's quite a journey, but he's ultimately placed under house arrest. Now, we don't have any of the specifics of the timeline, but it's likely likely that Paul remained in custody for about two years, awaiting his case to be heard. Catching word that Paul was in this particular predicament had mounting legal issues and troubles, the church that Paul had planted in Philippi, which was a church made up of a lot of Romans. Philippi was a Roman colony. The citizens were mostly Roman veterans. Hearing word that Paul was arrested, was in Rome, had legal troubles, they they decide to do something. They act. They take up a collection, a love offering. And they send Epaphroditus with this financial gift. Paul receiving this gift, overwhelmed with thanks, pens a letter, this letter to Philippians. And he sends it back with Epaphroditus to the believers at the church in Philippi. Now, if you weren't with us last Sunday, with kind of the background, color, and context in mind, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, seeking to accomplish three very simple goals. First, and most obvious, Paul just wants to say thank you. It's a thank you note. He wants to express his gratitude for the friendship that he had with the Philippians, this financial gift that they had sent. Secondly, Paul writes, in order to explain that while God sometimes grants us deliverance from our trials, and if you recall, this is what happened when Paul had been in the Philippian jail, in other instances, God delivers in a totally different way. Sometimes it's from our trials. In other instances, God delivers us through our trials. One of the questions that the Philippians had is, okay, Paul was in Philippi, he was in jail, God supernaturally delivered him. There was an earthquake. It opened the doors, loosened the chains. Paul was out. But now it's been two years. Paul's in Rome in jail. Why isn't God delivering him the same way? And Paul writes to say, sometimes God delivers us from. Sometimes though, as in the case presently in Rome, God delivers us through. God will always deliver you from your trials, but the mechanism might be different depending on the situation, the circumstance. Finally, Paul writes to the Philippians because he wants them to know that because of the joy, the joy that they had based in the amazing grace of God, 
and not predicated upon one's circumstances, Paul wants these Philippians to know that they can rejoice. They can really, truly, because of God's grace, have joy in spite of whatever situations or circumstances, trials or tribulations they might face. As we study through this letter, you will see, you will witness that the Apostle Paul, writing from a Roman cell, one of the prison epistles, unsure if he was going to live or face a brutal execution, Paul was at peace because he was presently enjoying grace. Let's dive into the text. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's letter to the Philippians, he opens. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the letter begins with the order of Paul and Timothy, with the first name always signifying preeminence, it's likely Timothy is acting as Paul's scribe. So Paul is dictating a letter that, that Timothy's actually writing in his own handwriting. Now, if you refer back once again to last Sunday's study, both of these men, both Paul and Timothy, were familiar to the believers located in Philippi. Additionally, in chapter 2, verse 19 of this letter, Paul will even describe his intention of sending Timothy to Philippi, as he says, shortly. Now, right from the, the jump, Paul introduces himself to this church. He introduces himself and Timothy as being bond servants of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, this word bond servant is doulos, which possessed a very interesting distinction. The word does mean slave, but not any type of slave. The term doulos actually described a man or a woman who was a slave by choice, not obligation or by force, by free will. In such instances, the kindness of the master ends up being so great, so genuine, so real, that the individual chooses to remain a slave even though they've been previously set free. You worked off a debt. You were given the certificate. You're a free man. But because of the kindness and the love and the heart of the master, you don't want to go anywhere. You want to stay. And as a result, there was a legal procedure by which that individual could come back to the master and say, I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to live in your house by obligation or by force. I want to be here because I want to be here, because I love you, and this is a reciprocation of your love. It's a doulos, a bondservant. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 21, there's kind of the Jewish version of this entire concept. By which, at, at with this point, the slave would be taken, the master of the house would take him, and nail his, his ear to the door. There was an actual earring that signified this distinction between a common slave and this type of a slave that was there by freedom, by choice. Now, though we live in a country that trumpets both life and liberty, the reality is that freedom is really just a mirage. Bob Dylan one of the great poets of the last century, he famously sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. I'm not, it's not rocket science. I'm not breaking any news. You can just look around at our society, our culture. The reality is that people are enslaved to all kinds of things. They don't want to admit it, but they experience it. People are enslaved to, 
to drugs. We have an opioid, opioid addiction problem. Drugs, pills, people addicted, enslaved, sex, pornography. People are enslaved to gambling, fame, money, even a career. Some people are enslaved, and this might be the most common, to debt. Student loans, Capital One, Discover Card. I just can't break free, and they don't want you to. People are enslaved to a toned body. I'm not. <laughs> but some people are. Thrills. Just fill in, fill in the blank. You know, the paradox for our culture isn't freedom from enslavement. What we should consider is the freedom to choose who we want as masters. That's the only measure of freedom we're really given. This is what makes this statement to me, bond servants of Jesus Christ, so profound. Like Paul is saying that while Jesus had liberated both he and Timothy from their sin, their lives of sin, this world, they had both, in response to the freedom they had been given, choose to serve Jesus. They become love slaves and not in the perverted sense. Their lives, according to this, they, it was no longer their own. They had made a choice to surrender all to Jesus out of a response to his incredible love. And, and why was this important? Paul, who don't forget is sitting presently in a Roman prison awaiting trial before a madman, a certifiable looney tune, Nero. Paul, though, he was able to endure what he was facing because he knew his identity was not determined by his environment or his circumstances. Right from the beginning, he says, we're, <laughs> yeah, I'm in chains in Rome, but I am a servant of Jesus. I've made this decision. He was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which means that Paul never forgot that his present situation had no bearing on his purpose and therefore had no right to rob him of his joy. Now, as we mentioned last Sunday, there is no doubt that in writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, that Paul was thinking of specific people. We studied them last Sunday by looking back at Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 20. As Paul writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, he is thinking of Lydia and her family, the slave girl that he had liberated from demon possession, the Philippian jailer and his whole household who were baptized in the middle of the night. These men and women were the folks that Paul viewed as being saints in Christ Jesus. Now, contrary to the perspective of sainthood developed by the Roman Catholic Church, the Bible defines all followers of Jesus, all believers, all Christians, as being saints. The Greek word for saints is hagios, which literally means a most holy thing. Though sainthood has become a title that serves to honor someone of distinction. The truth is that anyone Jesus died to save is a most holy person in the eyes of God the Father. Thus, we are all saints. We are not saints by what we do. We are saints by what he did. In addition to the saints in this greeting, Paul also mentions here the bishops and deacons of the Philippian church. In the original language, this word bishop simply means overseer. 
And the word deacon refers to a designated doer. The Greek word actually uh, means one who executes the commands of another. So there were bishops and deacons in this church. Now, Paul doesn't mention any specific names to these titles. He's speaking and, and largely in generalities. But you shouldn't overlook the reality, the fact, that the apostle is affirming that within a local church in Philippi, there was organizational structure. Aside from saints, which they all were, Paul says that there were bishops, overseers. You'd also define this as pastors or potentially elders. And then there were deacons. Both classifications are presented in the plural, meaning that this church had several overseers and many deacons. Look at Paul's first words to these Philippian believers. He begins, I love this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great introductory sentence. You know, with the exception of the two letters that Paul writes to Timothy and then the one that he writes to Titus. And the only dis dis distinct difference is that Paul adds the word mercy between grace and peace. Every other letter that Paul pens contains this exact same customary salutation. Like when you consider the fact that Paul had previously been a man named Saul who was a staunch enemy of Jesus, had been arresting Christians, was the chief persecutor, who the book of Acts describes as a, a ravenous dog in his hatred of Christianity. This man who's on his way to Damascus to inflict more damage on the church as it's spreading. You can run, but you can't hide. It was on that road that Saul encounters the very man that he was fighting against, a man named Jesus. And no doubt as Paul, boom, is on his backside, realizing, who is this? And he hears Jesus, whom you are persecuting. If you and I were in the dynamic, what are we expecting next? Lightning bolts being squished. Yo, you're fighting me? You're fighting my kids? You're toast, pal. And yet Paul, in that moment, what does he hear? He hears, are you tired of kicking against the goads? Or literally, are you tired resisting the truth that you know? And Paul responds. And the very, the very individual he was fighting against, he becomes the greatest proclaimer of. He's the biggest enemy of the church, and he becomes the biggest proclaimer of the church. He becomes Paul. He had been Saul, which meant mighty, big, full of himself. But then he became little. He became Paul. His estimation of self. It's not an accident to me that this man, why had he been saved? Why had he been spared? Did he deserve it? Oh, contrary. Why had he been, one, one reason. It was God's grace. It's why in every single letter, the first word that Paul communicates to any audience is this word grace. For Paul, it was the primary message of the gospel. Without grace, there is no good news. You know, in 156 times that the word grace is used in the New Testament, the word takes on a redemptive quality because it does this. It describes, the word grace describes an act whereby God avails his favor to those 
who fundamentally don't deserve it. Grace is the word that describes the favor of God being extended to those who are by definition not worthy of it. Some have defined this concept of grace as unmerited favor. And it's it's a good definition. Others have more creatively described grace using an acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's also fitting. In the Greek, the word grace is charis, which simply means favor. But that said, it should also be pointed out that charis derives from the Greek word caro, which means to rejoice. You see, in essence, God's grace, it's an unmerited favor. It's a bestowed favor from God to those who don't deserve it that yields rejoicing. If you have no reason to sing, to worship, to exalt the name above all, then you don't understand grace because grace, by its very definition, yields a rejoicing, a joy. Back to Paul's salutation. Grace to you and peace. You know, it's not an accident that every time we see this coupling of these two words in Scripture, it's always the same. It's always grace and then peace. You see, it's impossible for a person, impossible for you, to experience the peace of God unless you're willing to come to peace with God. And coming to peace with God is only possible if you're willing to accept the grace of God. You know, it's a truth. Think of it. If your salvation, how you're made right with God, or your sanctification, how you become a better person, if either of these two things had or still have any basis on your works or your lasting merit, your worthiness, real peace with God would be totally unattainable. Peace is only found when it follows grace. You see, if your status with God was predicated upon your performance in any way, how could you ever be at ease? How could you ever know if you've done enough? You'd never have peace. You know the one word you'll never find in Islam? It's the word grace. You will never find it in the Quran. It is a concept, as a matter of fact, that Muslims completely reject. The only guarantee you have of salvation, of paradise in Islam, you can obey the five pillars of faith You can be dedicated and determined. You never still have a guarantee. You never actually know if you've been good enough, if you've done enough, if you're found worthy enough until you stand before Allah. There is no grace. There is no undeserved merit. Thus, there is no peace. There's always an an uneasiness, a wrestling. Have I done enough? To this point, According to Paul, he says both grace and peace are not something that you can manufacture. They're not something you can create. Grace and peace, according to Paul, are something that have to be given. They have to be given by God. They originate in him before being extended to you, to me. Look back. He says grace and peace, where? From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, the only way you can truly have peace with God is when you first find rest in the knowledge that your standing with God is based not in your works, but his work, based in his grace that's made available through Jesus and what he accomplished for you. Your salvation, your sanctification cannot be attained or then maintained and yield peace. You see, God, God's favor, God's peace cannot be earned, nor can they even be found apart from his willingness to bestow them. Which means this, if you're tired of trying to earn God's approval, or you're tired of trying to be good enough to live up to some standard that you've set. Tired of the striving and the fighting and the inevitable failing. If you truly long for peace with God so that you can experience the peace of God, I want you to know something. That this is exactly what Jesus came to give you and that he's more than willing to bestow it to anyone that will receive it. Never forget, the human soul will never find peace apart from the grace of God. Well, verse 3, Paul continues, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, now right from the beginning, um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but, but reading Paul, his epistles, can be very difficult. <laughs> Paul is master of the run-on sentence. Like it just runs and it runs. And he does this thing where he gets a thought going and then another thought he throws in and then he gets back to his thought. And so you're reading and like he includes some things that are not really relevant to the point he's making, but just kind of an afterthought. Like, and then you have the translation from Greek, Koine Greek, into English. And Koine Greek is the greatest language that's ever been. English, eh, not so much, especially our version of it. Meaning that to unpack these things, we kind of are going to engage in a process of going through it. Uh, maybe it might appear to be laborious, but we want to help you understand it. So following the greeting, look at how it starts. He says, I thank my God. Like in the original language, the phrase, I thank can be translated as, I'm just so grateful. The Greek word actually describes the action of thanksgiving that manifests from a feeling of gratefulness. It's a feeling manifesting an action. It's, it's actually the Greek word. It's the same word we'll translate as the Eucharist or the partaking of communion out of a gratefulness or a thanksgiving. It's a feeling motivating a response, an action, which is important because Paul in the first several words is letting these believers know what he's feeling, like what he feels like. And don't, don't miss the significance of that. Like imagine that you're in this Philippian church. Your friend Paul is in prison. 
His outlook, you know, is very bleak. Finally, after months, Epaphroditus returns from Rome. He's carrying a correspondence, a letter from Paul. Now, you would completely understand, as you're sitting there, the scroll's being opened, they're getting ready to read what Paul has to write, you would have expected Paul to maybe be a little bummed out, right? Or depressed over his present situation. But how incredible it must have been to hear these four words. I thank my God. You see what Paul's saying? He's like, man, I'm full of joy and I'm full of thanksgiving. Guys, I'm feeling pretty good. Like that's what he's communicating. Like right from the beginning of his letter, Paul is making it known that his current dynamic had not robbed him of the ability to be thankful or to possess joy. His earthly outlook, which was absolutely ominous, hadn't robbed him of his heavenly perspective. And then Paul continues by explaining or attributing his joy to three specific things. First, Paul attributes these feelings of thanksgiving to, quote, every remembrance of these Philippian believers. As Paul is sitting there thinking back about these dear saints, as he reminisced of the time that he had spent with them, his labor of love in Philippi, the way they had reciprocated his love by sending financial aid to support him in the ministry, Paul is just overcome with thanksgiving. I'm just so thankful, so grateful when I'm thinking of you. Like in a general sense, Paul's friendship with these Philippians and the memories that he had of them proved to be a great source of joy even in the midst of his despair. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus said something interesting. He said, quote, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. And then he sums up his point by then saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Understand, there are only two things, friend, that you'll be able to take with you to heaven. Only two things. Matter of fact, it, you could define it as the treasure. Your friends and your memories. None of your stuff your retirement, none of those things you'll take with you. But your friends and the memories you make with those friends will last forever. You see, Paul, he cherished these Philippian believers so much that he even says, I have you in my heart. He, he was, his thankfulness went to his bosom. Like for the apostle, these men and women, they were his treasure. And as such, there was no earthly circumstance that could steal from him the joy that he found in them. Aside from Paul's joy stemming from every remembrance of these Philippians, Paul is also filled, filled with this feeling of thankfulness as he considered their, quote, fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. In the Greek, this word fellowship, not a word we throw around a lot in English, but in the Greek, it's kononia which describes more than just a connection. It's a partnership. They had partnered with Paul in the furtherance of the gospel, not just at the beginning, but even up until this very point. Paul then, in the, in the verses that follow, he adds an example to kind of illustrate the depths of his partnership. He says, 
inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Now, though Paul was in prison, unable to plant churches, which was his mission, these Philippians were still fully supportive of Paul. They were behind him. Like, they didn't bail when the going got rough. In actuality, and within the larger context of Paul's chains, this word partakers, it implies, and it's my, my belief, that the Philippian church, they were actually financing Paul's legal fund. That this is how they were partaking of the ministry. Because Paul was about to stand trial before Nero to give an account of the gospel and his specific role in the gospel spread across the world. A little backstory to all of this. Luke, his physician, who was also a traveling companion, who don't forget was also the first pastor of the church in Philippi, Luke writes a defense brief for Paul. The whole point is to explain how Christianity came to be and then how it was now spreading across the globe. To do this, Luke compiles two documents that become legal briefs. First, the Gospel of Luke is designed to explain Jesus and his ministry and how Christianity started. The book of Acts, also written by Luke, was designed to then share how this Jewish man named Jesus is now changing the world, how the Gospel was spreading. Both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts exist to be defense briefs. And it seems as though that the Philippians were helping with the financing of all of this. You see, the Philippians knew that the stakes were high. Yes, Paul was in prison. Yes, Paul would stand before, before Nero. But Paul was not just giving account for himself. Paul was on trial for all of Christianity. How Nero would rule would have profound implications for believers everywhere. Paul says that the Philippians had partnered with him. Look at it. He says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This Greek word that we have translated defense, it's apologia, which spoke of a formal legal argument, an actual defense. The word confirmation is only used twice in scripture, and it described an, an actual settlement of a business transaction. They're both legal terms. It would appear that Paul was thankful that the Philippians were willing to partner with him in his chains by financing his defense. Finally, aside from his remembrance of them and their partnership with him, Paul found incredible joy in the knowledge that he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who had begun a good work in them, would complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul was so certain of this incredible reality that he even declares that he was totally confident of this very thing. Now, the implications of this statement are radical. They're radical for us. Paul says, he who has begun will complete it. You might want to highlight, just underline those two sections because that's, that's the core of it. Paul, he first affirms who started this good work in you. Like, understand, the work of salvation, the work of regeneration, the rebirth, when you're born again, it doesn't originate via a work that you accomplish, right? That's not what Paul's saying. He says, 
He who has begun this good work. You see, this work of regeneration, it occurs the very moment that He, the Holy Spirit, indwells the individual. It's not a work you do, it's a work He does. He initiates, He begins. Writing in Titus chapter 3, Paul says this, For we ourselves were also once foolish, We were disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we had done, but how? According to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ our Savior, having been justified now by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of the eternal promise of life. The whole point is who begins the work? Not you. He, the Holy Spirit, indwelling the individual. But secondly, notice this. Paul then affirms who completes this good work in you. Who initiates it and then who completes it. You see, the same Spirit who begins the transformation continues the transformation until it's completed. Like what this means is that your sanctification, I know it's a fancy word. When we talk about sanctification, it's your transformation. It's the development of godly attributes. You becoming a better person. You becoming Christ-like. You see that, the work doesn't initiate by you, but by the Spirit in you. But it doesn't then continue through your works. Instead, it continues through a process of the Holy Spirit working in and through you. He who begun, began, continues. Once again, writing in Galatians chapter 5, Paul observes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there's no law. And those who are Our Christ have crucified the flesh, its passions and its its desires. And then he concludes, and this is what's important, if we live in the Spirit, or if our life began in the Spirit, let us then walk in the Spirit. Do you realize that your spiritual life demands the cradle-to-grave involvement of the Holy Spirit? As a matter of fact, Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12 is described as being what? The author and the finisher of our faith. At no point, friend, in your spiritual life is the direct involvement of God's Spirit not paramount. In actuality, so much grief ends up being yielded when we forget that He who has begun will complete it. Will. It's emphatic. It's emphatic. Like, at no point in the process does, A, God need your help, but how glorious a reality that God will never begin a work that he's not willing to see through. That he who has begun will complete it. If you just get out of the way and let him work. Verse 8 is one of the many instances in this letter when Paul's love for the Philippians just it oozes, it oozes forth. It just comes flowing out, right? He writes, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And his thanksgiving for the time that they had had 
the work that they were doing together. The result, Paul was certain Jesus would yield. He kind of closes it by saying, man, more than anything else in this world, I want to be with you. I long to be with you. And yet, because he couldn't be with them physically, Paul spent his time interceding for them spiritually. Like he's already mentioned the fact that he always in every prayer made requests for them all with joy, but now he's going to relay the substance of what he was praying. Once again, he kind of mentions, I'm praying for you as he's talking about all the things that make him thankful. And now, verse 9, he gets back to what he's praying. This, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Look at the first item in Paul's prayer list. He says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Now, keep in mind, just because Paul prayed that the Philippians' love might abound still more and more didn't mean that they weren't loving. Like the idea behind the word abound itself is that Paul's desire is that their love would superabound, would exceed its limits, would excel or overflow. The reality is that Paul wanted to see their love for one another increase and deepen because Paul knew something very important. This is what Paul knew. Since there is no bottom to the depths of God's love for us, there should be no limit to the love that we should have for one another. If you think you've arrived, you're just scratching the surface. You can never get to the bottom of God's love. Thus, we should never get to the bottom of our love for each other. And yet, keep in mind that the origins of this love don't reside in us. This is not a natural love. This is instead something supernatural. The word that Paul uses here for love is agape, which described a divine love that originates with God. God is love. God is agape. But then it's a love originating in him that flows to us before then flowing from us to others. It runs downhill. The word agape, you will often find in the phrase in the Bible, the love of God. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle John made it crystal clear how all of this was to work. I'll just let him say it. He says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the covering for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. A love I experience with God that then manifests in a love for others. But notice that while Paul's prayer centers on a superabounding type of love, don't be mistaken, it's not a love without boundaries. As a matter of fact, Paul wants their love, look at it, to abound still more and more how? He had some caveat, right? In knowledge, or literally a precise and correct understanding, and discernment, which you could translate as judgment. You know, we live in a society that presents love. It warps it, actually. Our culture presents love as the willingness to accept all things, to turn a blind eye to behaviors that might be destructive, and one that's void of any type of judgment. 
not only is that dangerous to everyone involved, but the truth is it's not love. Like understand love in the purest sense is not only willing to challenge what might be wrong, but is willing to stand for what is true. Knowledge and discernment. Like real love places eternal well-being over temporary feelings. It's a love that longs for what is best over the acceptance of what isn't. Paul is encouraging these believers to a deep love, a heavenly love, a divine love, but one with appropriate guardrails. And what are the appropriate guardrails? Truth, knowledge, and discernment. Increasing in truth and the application of what's true. Paul continues his list of prayer requests. He says, I pray that you may approve the things that are excellent. In the Greek, this word approve, it meant to test, to examine or try, literally to scrutinize in order to decipher whether something was genuine. It's actually a metalworking type terminology. You, you heated up the metal so that the impurities, you would test it. The impurities, is this really pure gold or pure silver? In regards to the idea of the things that are excellent, Paul is speaking to a standard a standard by which we judge things, our ability to effectively divide, that you may approve the things that you can divide. You know, as it pertains to our spiritual lives, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, Paul writes something interesting. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. The grand consideration for Christians for those who have been saved by God's grace, it's not a good versus bad dynamic. All things are lawful. Instead, the grand consideration for us is not good versus bad, but good versus what's best. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we're exhorted to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Why? So that we can run the race with endurance that's set before us. Note a qualification. There is sin, that's obvious, but then there are also weight, which is not by definition sin, but just something that slows me down from running my race. And Paul is saying, I, I pray that your love would deepen and it would super abound with knowledge and discernment. But I'm also praying that you approve, that you test, that you scrutinize things, and that, that you divide, that you only adhere to the things that help you and your walk with the Lord. Hey, there are a lot of liberties that you are free to enjoy. That's not to say that all those liberties are helpful to, to becoming like Christ, to running the race with endurance. And then it's up to you to approve or divide which of those things in your life are helpful or a deterrent. What might be weight that's slowing you down? He also says, I pray that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The word sincere, it, it means literally without a mixture. And the word translated without offense spoke of having nothing to strike against. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, it's my prayer that you live such lives of internal character that it would only serve to validate your external reputation that you may be sincere, pure. 
without offense, without accusation, above reproach. Finally, Paul closes this section by saying, by praying. He says, I pray that you're being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul desired more than anything that their lives demonstrate the person and the righteousness of Jesus. This is the reputation and character that Paul wanted to see in them. But note, because it would be easy to be a bit depressed by that, right? Like, oh, snap. The righteousness of Jesus? Like, how in the world do I do that? Well, you don't. Like, like look at what Paul says. He says, these fruits are how? Are by you? Are by Jesus Christ. Now, in the statement, Paul's using here a common illustration, the illustration of fruit. And he does this because of fruit, the fruit of righteousness, of rightness, this fruit. Fruit's nothing more than a natural byproduct, right? Of just hanging out in a vine. Like you never walk by a vineyard and you see grapes really struggling to be grapes. You know, those grapes are just like, like, I'm just really wanting to just be a grape. No. It happens, it's a byproduct of just nature and the soil and the vine and the sun. Happens organically. It's the opposite of, of trying or manufacturing or working. It occurs. Jesus uses the same illustration in John chapter 15. He says to his disciples, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Don't miss that. Cannot. You cannot bear fruit of yourself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. It happens. You don't have to try to make it. It happens. This righteousness, it occurs. And then he says, for without me, you can do nothing. Once again, Paul was confident of this very thing. That he who had begun a good work will complete it. The same idea applied to the development of this righteousness or their ability to demonstrate the characteristics of Jesus. Never forget. The power of the gospel, your salvation and your sanctification resides not in you but in the Spirit's ability to work in and through you. You become more like Christ, friend, not through your striving, your working, you knuckling down, or your self-disciplines. In the end, you become like Christ through a continued relationship with Jesus, abiding in the vine. As we close this morning's study, I can't help but to point out that Paul was able to be thankful Paul was able to possess a real joy. I thank my God. In spite of his circumstances, being cruddy. And how was he able to? There's two reasons. First and foremost, Paul never lost sight of his identity. Who he really was. And thus, he was never robbed of his purpose. Paul was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Yes, he was a prisoner of Rome. But he was a bondservant. 
He served Jesus. And if this is where Jesus had him, he still served Jesus. His purpose was the same. His mission was the same. His meaning. Paul actually, in the verses to follow, will build on this idea, so we'll leave it to next Sunday. But there's a second reason. You see, Paul had joy because he kept his outlook other-centered. That's one of the things, if you're just kind of just reading through the text, one of the really, it just jumps out at me when you place all the background in context, right? Like Paul is in prison. His very future in jeopardy. And he writes a letter. But instead of complaining or expressing his disappointments, what is Paul's chief consideration? Is it him at all? Would you say that the opening here is me-centric or others-focused? Paul's concern is the, the well-being of the Philippians. Like if it had been me writing, I would have like started with a whole list of prayer requests. Like I'm in a terrible spot, man. This is what I need you praying for. I need some food, some sunshine, some time in the weight room. You know, like I got a whole long list. I'm in, a, I'm in, I'm in prison, man. Here's a list of things I need you praying for me about. But how does he open? He doesn't mention any of his requests. He instead says, guys, I am praying for you. And then he runs through a whole long list of things that he's praying about. He begins his prayer from prison, not asking to be prayed for, but by making it clear, I'm praying for you. It's clear that his focus was where? Not on himself, not on his circumstances or his situation. His focus was on other people. I know so many people that are miserable for one reason. They're self-consumed. And I can sympathize. It's easy to get self-consumed when you're in a prison. Either you've been thrown there or you've made it for yourself. To be woe is me. And yet Paul resisted that notion by getting his eyes off of himself onto other people, other things that he could find joy in. That's amazing to me. He starts by praying for them. You know, it is possible to be enjoying grace in whatever terrible situation you might be presently facing as long as you, like Paul, keep your perspective on two things, who you actually are. You're not a prisoner. You're a servant of Jesus, bought and bought by the blood of Christ, a son and a daughter, that God is in control, that he has not abandoned you, he doesn't leave you nor forsake you, that he has you right where you are. And that stinks, but it's still true. That you're not gonna play a victim, which we'll get to in other weeks, how our identity skews our perspective. And yet, joy. You know, you learn this in Sunday school and it's cliche, totally cliche. Doesn't mean it's not still true. Joy. How do you get joy? Well, first you get it in grace, but grace enables this perspective. Jesus first and who I am in Jesus, who he's made me, that he who begins a good work will complete it. And two, it's, it's oh, it's others. My perspective is Jesus and then it's others before yourself. And if you have that perspective, it might not make your situation easier. 
but it will give you the tools that you need so that you still have joy. So Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.